But I've got a, a message for you today. Are you ready to jump into God's Word? Yeah. Amen. I knew I was in the right room. So we're going to be concluding a series today that Pastor's been teaching from that he entitled Fixated. Fixated. So one of the primary burdens that he's been teaching to us from is the enemy's strategies of stealing our devotion to Christ and the challenge for us to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on him. I came across a story this week I want to share with you uh, as I jump into the message today. And so there was this uh, couple of employees that were having a conversation outside of a break room, and the employer walked by, and he overheard one of the employees saying to the other, you know, if I just had $1,000, I'd be content. So the employer walks over to the employee and said, you know, I, I couldn't help but overhear what you said. You know, I've never really found the, the, the money that I've made has brought contentment, but if I can do that for you, I, it'd be my honor. So he pulls his wallet out and he hands the employee $1,000 and walks off. And as he does, the, that employee looks at the other and says, man, I wish I would have asked for 2000 <laughs> How many can identify with that? Turns out the $1,000 didn't bring contentment, not even for a moment. Um, I don't think many of you would disagree that we may be likely be living in the most discontent era of our world. Would you, would you agree with that? We're the most marketed to generation in the history of the planet. And think about this. There was a couple of statistics. I like numbers and statistics. And so there was one that I came across. In the 1970s, the average American would see roughly 500 advertisements a day. Fast forward to today, conservative estimates suggest that we see around 5,000 advertisements a day. And for those of us that do a significant amount of our work on screens or have a phone with us, like a lot of us do, some of the, the more liberal estimates would suggest that it's more like 20,000. Can you imagine? I mean, yes, you can, because you guys experience. How many, how many of you have uh, been having a conversation with someone about something that you need or want, and then the next time that you're scrolling social media or you Google something, all of a sudden there's the advertisement? <laughs> Big brother. Always watching. <laughs> um, we are constantly bombarded with messaging. Um, I want to play a game with you real quick. Is that okay? This is an audience participation game. All right. So I'm going to say something. I want you to tell me what comes to mind. Like a good neighbor. What gives you wings? I'm loving it. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Bet you can't eat just one. The snack that smiles back. Goldfish. Our children's department keeps them in business. What's in your wallet? Capital One. All right, this is a little, these are a couple of throwbacks, so younger folks may not be as familiar with this one. Where's the beef? Wendy's. Y'all remember the little lady that used to open the big oversized bun? That, that ad was in 1984, 38 years ago. Does that make you guys feel old like it does me? <laughs> Here's one more throwback for you. Melts in your mouth, not in your hand. 
M&M's, that ad came out in 1954, 68 years old. How powerful is marketing? So I, I did some research. I went back to my college uh, marketing and advertising textbook. And I want, I want to submit this to you and see how, if this rings true for you. This was, on the subject of marketing, this was the definition or one of the explanations of what marketing and advertising exist for. Get a load of this. One of the primary purposes of marketing is to make your life feel somehow incomplete or lacking without the product or service. To create dissatisfaction with what you have in order to coerce you in the direction of a purchase that will relieve a manufactured psychological tension. Let me read that last part again. To create a dissatisfaction with what you have in order to coerce you in the direction of a purchase that will relieve a manufactured psychological tension. We see phrases like, last one left, right? I had this happen to me the other day. I was scrolling through looking at some shoes, and it showed, you know, last one. I was like, oh. <laughs> and what you all know is it's the last one till you buy that one, and then it's the last one again. Baby, you're glad to know I fought off the temptation. Hallelujah. That time. <laughs> We, we hear phrases like, you'll never look so good. You're worth it. Don't miss out. Look so good on the outside, it'll make you feel good on the inside. <laughs> Anybody ever heard of those? Pastor last week really helped tee me up for this weekend because he was talking about comparison. He was talking about FOMO, fear of missing out. And I'm going to go a little bit deeper into that today. Because we're really talking about contentment. This is really the subject of what I want to, to bring you today, true contentment. And the fact that our innate human nature, fed and exaggerated by our culture, coupled with comparison, and all of the things that we have to navigate in our daily life, produce it. Just like that definition of advertising, it's to create dissatisfaction. If we stay on that path, it's a long road to nowhere. And I wrote this down. What a lot of this leads to for so many is spending too much time trying to get to the land of Ur. E-R. Everybody try to get to the land of Ur? Being influenced by people that are richer, look better, drive something nicer or faster, married or dating someone prettier, or cuter. They are have kids that are smarter. <laughs> they are skinnier. <laughs> they have careers or jobs that look superior. I know that's an or, but it's an er for the sake of this message. <laughs> and if we stay on that path, we'll continue the infinite loop of misery with nothing to show for it except just er. That's what I'm talking about today. Dave Ramsey says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. And that's true, isn't it, of a lot of us today. 
This is my key verse that we're going to launch into as I explore this topic with you today. It's taken from a book that I don't know that I've ever heard preached from. I'm sure it has been, um, but it's the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, this, is, this book, as we'll kind of explore together today, was written by King Solomon. And this is what it says, chapter 2, verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun. I title our message today, Fixated, Chasing the Wind. Let's pray together. Father, we just give you this time today. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd work in us, work in those here as you've been working in my heart to soften it and to hear your word and to apply it to our lives in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Chasing the wind. You could subtitle this, Discovering the Source of True Contentment. And just as a programming note, this message is going to be a little bit like some Major League Baseball pitchers, in that there's a slow wind-up, but a fast delivery. So if you're worried after I get a little ways in, I don't haven't heard a point yet, don't stress. The points will be fast to the plate, Okay. So, so hang, hang with me. i got to set some, some framing and groundwork for you. When you look at this passage that we just read, that's kind of our key verse for the day, the book of Ecclesiastes is unique in the Bible in that it's really a journal. So when King Solomon wrote this book, he would have been having somewhat of a midlife crisis. And if you read it, you'll know exactly what I mean. You'll also understand why it's not preached from all that often. Because it really has a lot of his just thoughts, just regurgitated on the pages. There's 12 chapters worth of him going through all of this kind of perspective, looking at his life, evaluation of his life. And I felt it was so relevant. As I read the entire book the other day, I kind of actually got to this part of my message late, because I was really focusing on Paul, which we will spend some time on. But as I read Ecclesiastes, I was like, gosh, if there's not ever been a clear picture of what we're dealing with, all of us today, Ecclesiastes says it. So keep that in mind as we kind of talk about, because a lot of times with Solomon, you hear him spoke of in a more positive light, because he was a wise man. He, he chose, he made some good decisions in his life. You know, he was a successful king, especially by a lot of the world standards. But we're going to look at a little different side of him together today. Just in the book of Ecclesiastes, that phrase, chasing the wind, shows up nine times. And when you hear me talk about that today throughout the message, chasing the wind, here's what I want you connect, the thought I want you to connect to. It would mean or be equivalent to our efforts to find anything of value outside of God's design plan for our life. Chasing the wind, our efforts to find anything of value outside of God's design plan for our life. How many have ever tried to chase the wind, much less catch it? You can't, right? That's what Solomon is reflecting on in these pages of this book. Another phrase you see 29 times throughout Ecclesiastes is this phrase, under the sun. What that refers to is the physical world. 
There's actually a Hebrew idiom that figuratively means life without God. That's how you translate that. Under the sun, physical realm, life without God. And then finally, the word meaningless appears 38 times in just 12 chapters. And that is a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor, just a mist, meaningless. So putting that together, let's take a look at that verse again. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was a smoke. It was a vapor. A chasing after the wind, an effort to find anything of value outside of God's plan for his life. Nothing was gained under the sun. Nothing was gained in the physical world. Nothing was gained without God. Question. Is it generally better to learn from your own pain and life experience or others? That is not a trick question. I'm still trying to convince my kids that that is wisdom to listen to my pain. And sometimes they listen. And sometimes they don't. They're teenagers. But let's learn today. Let's apply ourselves to wisdom today. And let's take a look at two main characters that I'm going to present to you in, in our time together, the, the few minutes that we have. I mentioned Solomon. So we're going to learn to avoid pain by learning from them, okay? Right? Everybody just nod your head. Yep. Okay. Solomon. He's going to be my Old Testament representative. So King Solomon was David's second son with Bathsheba. He grew up as royalty. His name means peaceful, and his kingdom, uh, for the vast majority of his reign, experienced peace. He expanded Israel's borders and economy more than any king in Israel's history. God appeared to him in a dream and asked what he wanted most. And this is where you know, Solomon's wisdom and where he began the race was good. Because he could have had anything, and he chose wisdom to lead God's people. And by virtue of that, God gave him wealth and influence and authority. He started, started off really well. Matter of fact, Kings 4.31 kind of denotes that he was the wisest of all men. King Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines, which begs the question, was he really the wisest <laughs> man? <laughs> By the way, that was not God's plan for Solomon. That was Solomon's plan for Solomon, and it cost him. He built the first temple of God in Jerusalem, took him seven years. That massive, ornate temple that we read about, all the detail and intricate nature. In Solomon's kingdom, there was so much gold that silver was virtually worthless, if you can imagine that. Incidentally, Solomon spent 13 years building his own palace. So you can see part of the problem just in that picture, can't you? He ruled Israel for 40 years, died before he turned 60. He was the writer of most of the Proverbs, Song of Songs. Guys, if you need some pickup lines, you can check that out. Um, fun fact, trivia, trivia fact for you. Um, there's only two books in the Bible that don't reference God. One is Song of Songs and the other is Esther. If you ever win a contest with that answer, please remember me. 
But listen to this. At the height of his reign, at the height of his prosperity, is when Ecclesiastes is written. And it would have been estimated that by today's monetary kind of standards, he would have been worth upwards of $2 trillion. Can you even imagine that? I can't. Somebody asked Mark Cuban one time, if you don't know Mark, he's the owner of the Mavericks, see him on Shark Tank, multi-billionaire. Somebody asked him one time, Mark, what's it like to be a billionaire? And his thoughtful answer was, you know, it's kind of like everything's free. And if you can say that of a billionaire, what would it be like to be a trillionaire? My point being, Solomon had infinite resources. He could get anything he wanted, any time he wanted, any place he wanted. But somehow, that didn't resolve his discontentment. Somehow, that didn't, he wasn't able to make enough to find peace. When you look at chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, and I'm not going to read this. I would encourage you, if you want to you know, kind of connect to what's going on with this guy and see if any of it connects to you, I'd encourage you to read the book. But I, I highlighted a couple of things I just wanted to bring out to you from chapter 2. And this is Solomon saying, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. I tried cheering myself with wine. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I bought male and female slaves. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings. I acquired male and female singers, a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind and nothing was gained under the sun. He's not saying that life is meaningless. What he's saying is that it's meaningless without God. What's under the sun what can be gained under the sun, what can be experienced under the sun. And you see, just in that little 26-verse swatch, he says the words, I, myself, me, and my, 51 times. What you can always notice in discontented people is a focus on me, myself, and I. And that's part of the heart condition. It's part of the problem. We've all struggled with it, Right? So our second figure that we're going to be looking at today is Saul of Tarsus. So this is our New Testament representative, but a lot of you know him by Paul. But he was born an Israelite and a Roman citizen shortly after Jesus was born. He grew up a tent maker and a leather worker. He was mentored by one of the greatest teachers in all of Judaism, a guy by the name of Gamaliel, I think. <laughs> However you say that. Gamaliel who was a leading authority in the Sanhedrin in the highest court in Jerusalem. Saul became deeply religious, wealthy, powerful, and evil as an influencer, as a Pharisee. And after Jesus' death, he participated in the stoning of Stephen. He made a full-time job persecuting and pursuing Christians. That was his, what he was known for. 
Not long after Jesus' death and resurrection, God appeared to him on the road to Damascus and knocked him off his donkey and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul had a conversion experience that day. And so as we're, as we're looking at these two figures, we're looking at Solomon, we're looking at Paul today, I want you to look through the lens, if you will, of their contentment or discontentment and what that meant to them in their life. Because you have Paul, who grew, grew up poor, or at least humble beginnings. He ascended to significance, to fame within at least his social circles and spheres of influence. Gave it all away to pursue Jesus and to preach the gospel. And so we're going to look at the outcomes for these two guys in our time today. And one last thing as we jump into the points. What is contentment? It's being fully satisfied, not needing more. Let that sink in. Not requiring anything else. Discontentment says all I want is just a little bit more than I'll ever have. If contentment is being happy or fulfilled, not needing more, then discontentment is always desiring more, but yet never having enough. It made God's top 10 list in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 17. says, you'll not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor his new jacked up four by four, nor his new house in a gated community, <laughs> nor his extensive firearm collection. No, not anything that is your neighbor's. And covet just means to desire it and want to take it for yourself. It represents discontentment. Why is that so important? The Ten Commandments, this is kind of cool, I never noticed this before, but of the Ten Commandments, the tenth, thou shalt not covet, is the only one that deals solely with a person's thought and emotions. All the other nine deal with actions. So what God's getting at here in this commandment is talking about dealing with our heart, dealing with our motives, and him wanting to be the source, not something else, not something somebody else has that we want. Amen? Contentment is not the fulfillment of what you want, but rather the realization of what you already have. If we're not satisfied with what we have now, we will never be satisfied with what comes next. And so with that, I get into our, our three short points, the first of which is contentment doesn't come naturally. Contentment doesn't come naturally. How many know that if, if you're observing a toddler in a room quietly playing by themselves with a toy, you can observe discontentment when another toddler enters the room with a different toy and the tornado siren goes off, <laughs> right? Contentment doesn't come naturally. Why? Because sin, our sinful nature comes naturally. Paul said in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We don't have to work at being discontent. We have to work at being content. And just like that toddler, I know none of you have ever done that, but somebody else's kids or, you know, somebody else. That's something that we have to be aware of, that we have to know is built into us the desire 
for more. Like toddlers, especially, you know, they tend to gravitate around a couple of key words early on. You know, mine, 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 and more. As a matter of fact, when our kids were, were little and, and starting to become verbal, Elena was, would teach them sign language to kind of help. Because especially with Jackson, he would get so frustrated because he, you could tell there was something he wanted to tell us, but he didn't have the words. And so he would just be frustrated all the time, and so, um, which was very frustrating to us as well. So Elena started teaching him you know, words like more. So that he could say, you know, I want more of that, which we quickly regretted, but <laughs> but he would tell us more. And because, especially at, at those ages, that's just what comes naturally. It's mine. We're more self-centered. It's about what we want when we want it. If we don't get it, what happens? A little fit throwing. Jackson threw one really bad fit, and Elena got that out of him. Um, <laughs> still remember it to this day. <laughs> she was a great mom. Um, Philippians 4, verse 11. This is Paul. I want you to pay attention to what he says here. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul's given us a key here. We have to learn contentment. It doesn't just happen. We don't just say a prayer, Jesus, give me contentment. Oh, it's all better. No, Paul's saying, I've had to walk this out. Paul's saying, I had to learn it. I had to apply myself to wisdom. I had to learn how to be content, whatever the circumstances. And this is a guy who had some circumstances. I think we would all agree. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. We know that verse, right? I know that verse to be misused a lot too because people will just take that one verse and just say, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you can. The problem is we get to start applying it to things that he never intended, like a car we want or a job we want or a relationship we want, or we start, you know, naming it and claiming it. And Paul, we got to look at the context. Paul's talking about contentment. I love the way the message breaks down that last verse. I want you to, to listen to this and see if this hits you like it hit me. Verse 12 from the message, I've found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one that makes me who I am. What that verse is speaking to is that no matter what my circumstances are, I can do it through him because he gives me everything that I need. Amen? That, that got all over me this week as I was reading through that and studying it because, I, again, growing up in a charismatic background, there are lots of scriptures that get taken out of context and misconstrued. And that doesn't mean that you can't pray that over needs in your life. But what it doesn't say is that you can take that and just willy-nilly apply it to anything you want. Because the context that Paul's teaching from here is contentment of heart. How do we be content? By knowing that wherever I am, whatever I'm going through, he's with me. 
and he will take care of me. Amen? And all this while Paul is in a Roman prison. He wrote this in a Roman prison. This is the same guy from Acts 14 that was stoned to death and drug out of the city. And some people want to argue because the scripture says, you know, he was left to die, I think, or something along those lines. And people want to say, well, he wasn't really dead. Okay. I'm not going to argue theology with you. Maybe, maybe not. Here's what I do know. They were good at stoning people back then. <laughs> it was a hobby. And Paul was one of the figures that they, li- they liked the least. And what you see after his resurrection is him getting up, running around, taking off, and preaching the gospel. I dare say that if they had even done a moderate job at stoning him, he would have been broken to pieces, <laughs> right? So I'm just saying, just submitting that for you. But I want you to think about this. And as Paul, as someone who's an authority on contentment, Paul got to go to heaven, albeit briefly. And I just imagine the moment where Paul's thinking, I've run my race. And he gets in front of the Lord, and Jesus is like, Paul, I got some good news and some bad news. (laughs) The good news is that you'll be back. The bad news is you got another lap in your race. (laughs) But you think about Paul got to experience what it felt like in heaven to be fully content. And now he's down here teaching to us, I have learned, no matter my circumstances, how to be content. This is a guy who was an authority on it. I came across this story. I felt like it was so good and appropriate in my study. Y'all like my stories? Okay, good. Just tell me you do if you don't. That's, that's Okay. There was a guy who was working really hard in his yard. If you know me, I'm really particular about my yard. My wife would tell you that with raised eyebrows. Uh, I was studying up here yesterday, and she asked me if she could and Jackson could mow the yard for me. And, and I said yes, of course. And then I had several instructions to give uh, them about, about blade height and, and, uh, and otherwise. So I'm a guy who likes his yard, mostly because growing up, we had a hay pasture for a yard. And so... Actually, having one's cool, but um, but there was this guy who was struggling with his yard. He had weeds. He had all these dandelions, and no matter what he tried, the dandelions kept coming back. He treated it. He, you know, put out weed killer. He he did everything he knew to to do, and the dandelions kept coming back. So he wrote a letter to the local agriculture department. And said, "Hey, here's what the situation. Here's what's going on." And here's all the things that I've done. And they wrote him a letter back that was one sentence that just simply said, we suggest you learn to love them. (laughs) And the reason I say that is because sometimes in life we have to adapt. We don't all get the same deal down here. I don't know if you guys have figured that out yet, but none of us get the same deal. Sometimes life isn't fair. We live in a broken world. Stuff happens. And I'm not going to stand up here and give you a bunch of sunshine gospel about just pray about it and it'll go away tomorrow because it's not. Some of it will. Do I understand where the line is? No, I don't. That doesn't stop me from praying and walking in faith. It doesn't stop me from believing for good things for my family, for believing for healing for my friends, for my family. 
But sometimes in life, like those dandelions, we just need to learn to love it. Whatever it is, adapt. Because we will encounter circumstances and situations that if we stay focused on what is wrong or what isn't going right or what we'd like to change, and that's where we focus our mind and attention, we'll miss out on everything God had for us beyond that. Amen? Amen. That was for somebody today. I don't know who it was. Contentment doesn't come naturally. Sometimes we have to adapt. Second point, discontentment distracts you from your purpose. Chasing the wind distracts us from God's plan for our lives. There's a whole lot of biblical examples, but here's just a few. Think about Lucifer, the original sin. It wasn't enough for him to be number two. It wasn't enough for him to be the worship leader of heaven. Not only did he get discontent and get kicked out of heaven, but he took a third of the angels with him. We see Israel, there's a whole generation that missed out on the promised land because they were griping and they were complaining and they were discontent. We see Adam and Eve lose paradise because they thought God was withholding something from them and they were discontent. Then you see Solomon, his discontentment, his chasing of the wind that ultimately resulted in what we see in this journal of thoughts in Ecclesiastes, but you see dissatisfaction leads to worshiping other gods. Part of what happened with all those wives and concubines is that they led him into worshiping other idols. It was part of his demise. We see selfishness and prideful behavior. We see a life that was going so well suddenly go off mission. And that's what I don't want for you today. Has anybody been pulled off mission by being drawn to other things or being pulled by position, power, finances, influence, whatever it may be? Everybody has, but don't stay there. We see in 1 Timothy, this is Paul again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. I want you to pay attention to this with me. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Rich there speaks to not just wealthy people. It speaks to rich. It speaks to targeting wealth for wealth's sake. In other words, putting themselves first. Paul's talking about those who want to get rich, who are targeting wealth for wealth's sake. They fall into temptation and a trap. A trap there is speaking to the specific temptations and schemes for people whose focus is more, whose focus is, whose heart position is in discontentment. They're, they're trying to get more. It's a, there's a trap. But there's traps all over the place. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And the picture of that word that's used there is kind of likened as if you're driving down a road at full speed and all of a sudden there's not a bridge there and you plunge off the cliff into the water or into the rocky crags. That type of, you, there's a trap and there's a plunge. Anybody ever had one of those? <laughs> I have. Plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Again, not money, the love of it. <laughs> 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. How many have pierced yourself with griefs or you've seen others really significantly pierce themselves with many griefs by getting off the path, off their purpose, pursuing other things? All of us have. Plunging ourselves into credit card debt, no savings, the least we can afford, relationship after relationship after relationship, Those traps, think about, you know, think about the mouse. He doesn't realize it's a trap until it's too late. So if you're fooling yourself thinking, well, I'll see the traps, then they wouldn't be traps, <laughs> right? Because the mouse is thinking free meal until he's not thinking at all anymore. And that's why so many of us think that, well, if we won the lottery, we'd do it better. If we won the lottery, we'd be smarter. I'd tithe to my church first, and then I'd give this to them and that to them, and I'd pay this off, and then I would, you know, fund all the missionaries in Africa, and, right? Then why do more than 70% of the people that win the lottery find themselves in a worse position inside of five years than they were when they started? It's a trap, guys. It's a trap. And it's God's grace that some of us don't win the lottery. Because <laughs> we pierce ourselves with many sorrows. Hebrews 13.5, again, likely Paul here writing, keep your lives free from the love of money. In other words, you know, traps that plunge. Keep ourselves free from the love of money and be content, satisfied, not needing more with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. There he is again. He's with us in all the things, making provision for us in whatever we have need of. Amen? And just remember Solomon. His name means peace, but the great irony of his life is that at the end of it, he had none. He had seemingly everything under the sun. In his words, he spent much of his life chasing the wind for things that proved to be meaningless, a vapor, smoke. And he squandered the amazing purpose that God had for his life. He started well, but how many know it's not how you start, it's how you finish? If the enemy can keep us distracted, he can keep us from our purpose. And some of you really need to hear me today. You've been chasing the wind. It's costing you your purpose. It's costing you your family. If I can just make a little more, and for some of you guys, because we're, we're the worst, I know this can apply to ladies too, but for a lot of us guys, we just think, well, I'll just, I'm working hard because I'm, I want to you know, have something to leave you when I'm gone. They'd rather have you. They'd rather have you. Ouch, that was, that was harsh. Um, <laughs> hear my heart. <laughs> hear. It's the truth, guys. Yeah. It's the truth. I've heard a lot of pastors say, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. 
So last point, the key to contentment. How do we stop chasing the wind? This is the key to contentment. And so I came across an Arabian proverb. Guys, if, if you'll put that on the screen for me. Um, or maybe you didn't get my note for that. I'll read it to you. How's that? All right. This is, if you take nothing away from this message today, except for this, this is worth the price of admission. This is, again, not the Bible, an Arabian proverb, okay? Better a handful of dates and content therewith than to own the gate of peacocks and be kicked in the eye by a broody camel. (laughs) Now, I searched far and wide and cannot come up with what in the world the gate of peacocks is, but I, I assume it to be very valuable, very valuable. I certainly don't want to be kicked in the eye by a broody camel, so I'm going to take the handful of dates. Um, maybe for some of you single people, that has a different context, but um, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. All right, seriously. Um, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist. That was just too good. Um, the key to contentment. Remember, Paul shared the key with us a moment ago from Philippians 4, verse 12. He said, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Again, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Key of contentment. I have everything I need if I have him first place. It's not enough just to have him along for the ride. He's got to be in the driver's seat. It's not enough just to go to church. That's good. It's not enough. He's got to be the Lord of your life. He's got to be in control. You know, that you see those bumper stickers back in the day, God is my co-pilot. Uh-uh. He's my pilot. <laughs> I'm a terrible co-pilot. <laughs> right? We have everything that we need if we have him first place. If you're struggling with discontentment, how do you cure it? You don't cure it by focusing on not doing it. You heard pastor talk about this a little bit earlier in the series, but if you're skiing and you're trying to avoid the trees, what do you not do? Look at the trees, right? If you're trying to play golf and you're thinking about don't hit in the water, don't hit in the water, don't hit in the water, what are you going to do? Most likely, hit it in the water, or as a friend of mine found out, have your club land in the water. Um, And the ball was safely on the other side somehow. But that's, we can't get a positive result by focusing on the negative. So it's about replacing those thoughts with the word of God, with the thoughts of God, with the contentment that can only come from the peace of God. Amen? So, I got to talking and lost my place in my notes. Um, so, looking at First Timothy verse or chapter six, verse six, Paul's talking to his protege Timothy here, and he's given him some. This Paul's ending his journey, and he's given Timothy some pearls of wisdom to live by. And he says here to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. That word could be translated into mega. Godliness with contentment is mega gain. 
How many want like a power-up, like an upgrade? It's mega gain. We have, you know, my, my pop used to say that, you know, because the end of that verse says we bring nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, right? And my pop used to say, you know, you never see the hearse followed by the U-Hauls because you don't get to take anything under the sun with you. But godliness here, what he's talking about to Timothy is God-likeness. What is it like to be God? What is God? Love. God-likeness. Love. In other words, here's the second part of the key to, to contentment, putting other people ahead of yourself. Remember, remember Solomon, the 50-some-odd I, me, and my's. All right? It's the opposite of that. It's putting everyone else first, not yourself. You see, that, that Hebrew kind of context or word there that, that talks about great gain and mega gain, what I want you to get from that is that it's not a secret to your personal wealth. Like, well, okay, if I master godliness and contentment, then that's the magic formula to get the mega gain, everything that I want. It doesn't really work that way. The mega gain really is not for us. The mega gain is for everyone else. And to be hard-pressed to really find true contentment and godliness with selfishness on board. Amen? Amen. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. This is Paul again helping us out. He's speaking to Timothy. Remember, he's finishing his race. He's given Timothy. This, these are pearls of wisdom. We can all get a lot of truth out of these. Verse 17 of chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Anybody seen uncertain wealth here in the last few weeks? I, I have. At the pump, stock market, wealth is uncertain but to put their hope in God. In other words, put him first place. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He provides it. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, not in money. Be rich in good deeds. To be generous and willing to share. In other words, to be godly, to be loving. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. That's what we want to leave behind. We don't want to leave behind stuff here as much as we want to lay up stuff there, right? The stuff that matters, the stuff that stands the test of time, the stuff that moss and rust can't corrupt or destroy, right? so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. In other words, contentment, peace, satisfaction. We can't take it with us, guys, but we can send it on ahead. Amen? So kind of as, as we wrap up here, what did Solomon... I, I, well, I got a question for you first. I want, this is a question I want you to write down. I want you to ponder in your quiet time this next week, or maybe this summer. Any of you journalers? I'm not, but if I were sitting out there, I would write this down, okay? I want you to think about this. This is a question I want you to wrestle with after today. When you leave this world, 
other than stuff, what will you leave behind? When we leave this world, other than stuff, what will we leave behind? And I want you to really answer that question for where you are today. And then I want you to think about how you want that to change. This is your kind of action part of the burden of this message today is it's not enough to hear what I'm talking about today. You got to do something with it. You can amen me or pastor or whoever any, all day long. It doesn't make a difference if we don't take something from this and do something with it. So if you don't do anything else or haven't, maybe haven't heard anything else that I've said today, I want you to ponder that question. And I want you to really answer it. And answer it for where you are at this moment. I can tell you I start answering it. I don't like it. But that's okay. It's a part. You can't go forward until you know where you are, right? you got to find yourself on the map. When you leave this world, other than stuff, what will you leave behind? Will the world, community, church, your family have gained anything of real lasting value because we were here, or are we just going to leave a bunch of stuff behind? What did Solomon leave behind? A guy that seemingly had everything, but yet was, had no peace, was discontented. Here's what he left behind. He left behind tremendous stuff. He left behind wealth, ornate buildings, a big family, sons and offspring that were largely ineffective, and some ultimately evil, that even turned into murderous kings and leaders. He left a divided kingdom. After his reign, the kingdom of God divided, the kingdom of Israel divided. He left a family in disarray. You see, Solomon started really well, but he ended really poorly. I don't want that to be our story. And then we have Paul. What did Paul leave behind? He left behind letters that shaped Western culture and Christianity for 2,000 years and counting. He left behind theology that would disrupt the corrupt Roman Empire. He left behind a string of churches around the Mediterranean rim that shaped how church would be done for Gentiles for 300 years. But yet he left nothing much materially that we can see. Paul started out poorly. But you know why I like Paul's story? Because it signals hope for all of us. Because I, I doubt seriously any of you have murdered Christians. But Paul finished well. Scripture says he ran his race. He finished well. And what he left behind was far more valuable than stuff. He left behind, he had spiritual sons. He didn't have natural sons, but he had spiritual sons in Timothy and others that he mentored, that he poured into, that he gave eternal wealth to. What do you want your legacy to be? And so I'll kind of end with these two scriptures, the one we started with, with Ecclesiastes 2.11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun. That was Solomon's story.
And then you see Paul speaking again to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 11. But you, man of God, he's talking to Timothy, you, man of God, flee from all this. Flee from selfishness. Flee from discontentment. He's just been exhorting him on this subject. Flee from it. Run away from it. That's what he's saying. Discontentment is catastrophic to your life. It will destroy your life. That's what he's telling Timothy. Flee from it, but pursue. Chase, if you will. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Paul was admonishing Timothy to not chase the wind, but instead to chase godliness, to to chase love of other people, pouring himself out for other people. So my friends, if we do that, we'll stop chasing the wind. And we'll find true, meaningful contentment and peace living our lives for the Lord and in service of our families and others. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Yeah, you can give Jesus a praise. I just want to close our time. Prayer team, you can go ahead and come down. I want to close our time. I want you to really be thoughtful about what we talked about today. Be mindful about take a quick survey of your survey of your life and here's what I don't want you to do please hear my heart do not fall into what's the word I'm looking for don't look at your life and be embarrassed about it don't look at back at your life and be disappointed i want you to look just as honest reflection because guess what it's not over We're just getting started, right? But we got to start today. So I want you, if you will, to bow your heads. We never like to, to end a time of, of prayer without asking if, those, if there are those that need a relationship with Jesus. And maybe as you've been listening to me today, you've, you've realized you've been chasing the wind in your life. Maybe you've been chasing all the things that we talked about. And maybe you find yourself here today feeling empty. You realize that there's more to it. There's got to be more to it than that. And I'm here to tell you there is. And it's the name that we started with today, Jesus, the name above every name. And so if that's you and you just say, Pastor Mark, I just want you to pray for me because I, I need him. I recognize today that I must have him, that I can't do anything without him. And that I'm ready to make that decision to put him in the driver's seat, to put him in the pilot's chair of my life and to give up control. If that's you, if you'll just raise your hand where I can pray for you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, thank you. Just pray something like this with me if you would. Jesus, I'm tired of doing it on my own. And I recognize that my life has been displeasing to you. It's been displeasing to me. But today I want to make a change. And so I offer it to you.
I ask that you'd forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my chasing. And come into my heart to be my Lord and my Savior and my very best friend from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. And if that was you, I want to encourage you as we dismiss today to come down for prayer. There'll be a lot of people coming down for prayer for different needs. So we won't embarrass you at all, but we do want to pray for you. We've got a free gift for you also. But um, I want to pray for the rest of you as we dismiss just uh, that the seed that was sown today would, would get deep into your heart. And especially as we, you know, this kind of signals this weekend, kind of signals the beginning of summer, and we all tend to go out and kind of get busy with all the things and the distractions and, and all that. I want, to, I want to rally you to this, to not forget it this summer, to pursue and chase the things of God and not the wind. Amen? So let me pray that over you today. Father, we just ask that you would help this word that you've given us today to go deep. Let it go deep into our heart, deep into our spirit. Lord, help us to set the right priorities in our lives. Lord, help us to put you first, to put our families first, to put the things of God and the kingdom of God first, and help us to let go of the things of this world so that we can live a full and rich, peaceful and contented life with you, knowing that with you, we have everything that we need. In Jesus' name, and all God's children said, amen. Amen. Can you give Jesus one more praise this morning? Hey, I love you guys very much, and I want you to be very, very careful this weekend because there's a lot of crazy people out there. Uh, chasing the wind. <laughs> so watch out for them. Be a light where you are, and we'll see you here safely next week. Amen? Love you guys.